Before we start, I just wanted to show you a copy of the book that I mentioned last week. This is the Bible Background Commentary. Uh, it's really, really valuable because what it does is it gives a lot of background historically, culturally, um, as far as the activities that were going on at that time. It helps us get a better grasp of what a lot of the uh, passages are talking about in the historical context. Uh, I've had this new, this is the New Testament uh, section, uh, and I've had this for some time, and I've been doing some study in the Old Testament. In fact, I taught at our church last Sunday, and we're in the book of Exodus, <clears throat> or our, sorry, on Wednesday I did. Um, so I looked to see if they had the Old Testament version on Amazon, and believe it or not, as big as that book is, I got the Old Testament version for 25 bucks, which is a bargain. Yeah. So just thought I'd mention it if any of you are interested. And if you'd like to uh, have a look at this afterwards, feel free to take it and look it over. It has a lot of really good historical information and background. Um, second thing I wanted to uh, just mention before we get started is the second uh, version of my notes on the New Testament is being shipped. So as soon as I get some uh, copies, I'll bring them and, and let you have them. Uh, this one covers uh, Romans, um, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, right? I think that's it. I think so. Yeah, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So may not be quite as big as the other one. And, I had hopes that I was going to be able to finish uh, the, the work up this summer. It looked like the summer was going to be wide open and it's just ending up crazy. Uh, I've got commitments and demands coming from all directions, so uh, we'll just have to finish it uh, as possible. But these notes on Hebrews are going to be uh, basically what will go into uh, the last uh, section. I've also got I've got older notes that I've done on 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the book of Revelation, and I'm probably just going to modify them a little bit, go through them and, and clean them up a little bit, and I'll probably do them. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to get it done at some point, but who knows? Who knows if we'll have the time? Uh, this is kind of a red letter day for uh, all of us, uh, I think, because uh, the Supreme Court did what they should have done. And of course, people all across the country are outraged. I was telling Nan on the way over here, I read somewhere there are over 30 different kinds of birth control. 30 different methods of birth control. But that's not enough. And some of the people that are so pro-abortion are now really letting their true uh, colors and their true thinking come out because in their demonstrations, they're actually showing up with dolls and they're taking knives and stabbing dolls and, and chanting, kill the baby, kill the baby. So uh, this is uh, really a very satanic mentality that's gotten a hold in our country. So hopefully we will uh, escape a lot of the madness that's gonna come out of this, but I promise you there are probably gonna be riots and uh, BLM and, and Antifa are going to come out again. And uh, they have, of course, the sanction of our government uh, with all of the burning and pillaging and uh, people getting killed. Uh, very, very few ever got arrested for anything. Um, and yet, you know, people who act within the law are being arrested and sentenced to all kinds of crazy sentences. So. Obviously, our country's off track. I seriously doubt that we're ever going to get back to normal. Uh, I, I think the new normal is abnormal. I think that's, that's where we're going to live. And we just have to uh, prepare ourselves mentally and spiritually to live in a world that's gone mad. And uh, just watch yourself when you're out and about because uh, there are crazies everywhere. And on that note of cheer and comfort, <laughs> we're going to go back to Hebrews chapter 8. So if you would join me in a word of prayer. And I might just mention I would like us to get together. There are several 
prayer requests I'd like to share with everyone afterwards. And uh, I'd like us just to maybe gather around and have a short prayer time for some uh, big needs that are going on right now. Let's start with a word of prayer, and we're going to pick up in uh, Hebrews 7. We'll go back and review just a little bit to pick us up uh, where we need to be uh, looking at the new covenant. So, Heavenly Father, as we have gathered together this evening in the desire to open your word and for God the Holy Spirit to take control of this time and sanctify this hour and sanctify each one of us, set us apart for your plan and purpose. And use this evening to equip us with the things that we're going to need in the days ahead. Pray that your word would come alive, that it would have powerful impact on our thinking, that by the renewing of the mind, we might fully dedicate ourselves to your plan and purpose for our lives. We pray, Father, for our nation. We thank you for the decision of the Supreme Court. But we realize that we are in a spiritual battle, and this battle, I think, is going to take us to the end of our dispensation, to the time when Christ will descend from heaven with a shout, and the saints will be transformed and rise, and we look forward with longing to that day. But in the meantime, we have to live on this earth and live effective lives. So we pray that tonight will equip us to do just that. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So in the eighth chapter, you'll remember that I stressed the first verse, which is that the main point of the author's argument in the book is that we have a high priest. That high priest, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And we've seen the quote several times that the father swore to the son under the hand of David who wrote it, uh, that the Lord has sworn you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. With the change of priesthood, there has to be a change of covenant. There has to be a change of law. And so the author is developing his argument about the time in which we live. And it's probably a lot easier for you and I to... Uh, orient to this and maybe a little bit difficult. I think Hebrews is probably one of the books that people have the hardest time uh, getting a handle on and getting in their mind because we're not where these people were. Uh, If you imagine that you had grown up under Judaism and that uh, from the time you were a child, you were instructed in the law and you were instructed in all of the ceremonies and sacrifices of the temple. And then all of a sudden, after a lifetime and and looking back on about 14, 1500 years of a rich, rich heritage that your people had enjoyed, and then all of a sudden someone comes along and says, everything's changed. It'd be very, very difficult for you to just automatically make that shift to lay aside certain practices and activities, uh, to move away from a way of thinking that was built around observance of the law. Uh, I think if we can think of it in that way, it gives us a little bit better understanding why the author is using some of the arguments that he is and why they were so important. So here we begin in verse 6. But now, but now actually establishes a break. And that break is based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that means that everything has changed. So the but now is actually showing us a... Uh, tremendous division in the ages of history. Uh, when we talk about history, we, we tend to think of it as running linear, just in a line. That's why we draw what we call the timeline. But we also have to realize that that line is divided. It's divided into ages. It's divided into uh, different segments. The Bible talks about times and seasons. And the word for times is chronos. We know that we get the word chronology from that. 
So chronos is the idea of linear time. Time keeps running on. Kairos, times and seasons, kairos, is the idea of time divided up. And this is more what we would call, and Paul does call, dispensations. When Paul talks, for example, about the church age, he calls it the dispensation of the grace of God. Now, the word dispensation is literally a word that means to be under a law. Uh, you are under some type of law in that dispensation. And uh, these people had been under the law of Moses. We now find ourselves under a different law, and it's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, or what we could call the law of love. And we touched on this in our Wednesday night study. Uh, if you want to hear that, you can go online and, and uh, get the Living Truth uh, website. But we started out at Sinai, and at Sinai, what did we have? We had lightning and thunder. We had the blast of a trumpet that caused the earth to quake. The people were absolutely terrified. And the reason for setting the stage in that way is because the law can do nothing but condemn us. No one can live up to it. No one can keep it. The idea that if we keep six out of 10, we're good, doesn't work. Paul makes it very clear in Galatians that if you violate even one command, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. And so the idea at the giving of the law was fear and trembling and terror because we're in the presence of a righteous and holy God and we are sinners and therefore we deserve only condemnation. But we managed on Wednesday night to end up coming into the new covenant. And I love the little phrase that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 when he talks about the fact that we now see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We who were once barred from his presence are now invited with open arms. We can enter in because having trusted in Jesus Christ, we have been, number one, subtraction, all our sins removed, past, present, and future. And then the addition, the righteousness of Christ is applied to us. It's, it's put to our account, if you will. And therefore we are, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter one and verse six, accepted in the beloved. <coughs> God accepts the believer as he would accept his own son. And so with that, uh, the new covenant really changes everything. And like I say, we probably don't notice that, that shift so greatly because we've grown up and lived under it. Uh, but the problem that we run into in our churches is that many churches are still trying to live under the law. Many churches are still trying to live under the old covenant. As a matter of fact, any church that has a specialized priesthood is trying to live according to Old Testament uh, conditions and uh, demands because we know that in the church age, every believer is a priest. Each and every one of us has the freedom and the invitation to enter boldly into the throne of grace at any time. So, but, but now, again, the, the break in human history, if you will, he, Jesus Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry, more excellent than under the old covenant, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. I've mentioned before that the word better is the, one of the key words, not, not the most dominant, but it's one of the key words of the book of Hebrews. And the idea is superior, superlative, greater in every way, incomparable, not just a little bit better, but above and beyond better than what they had under the old covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for the second. What was the fault with the first covenant? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7 and verse 12 that the law is holy and righteous and good. Well, if the law is holy and righteous and good, then what is the fault? Well, the fault was not with the law. The fault is with us. So Paul tells us in Romans 8 and verse 3, 
what the law could not do because it was weak through the flesh, God has done by sending his own son. So he goes on to say, finding fault with them, meaning the ones to whom the law was given, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will, and I want you to notice the language here, I will is the language of unconditional covenant. Depends totally on God. We play no part in it other than to receive it by faith. So I will make a new covenant, and notice it's with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So the covenant that God made with the children of Israel, we have entered into. Paul uses the analogy in Romans 11 of the grafting of the wild olive tree into the natural olive tree or into the tame uh, olive tree, which was contrary to nature. Generally, when you use grafting, you take the wild tree and you engraft the tame tree into it, the cultivated tree into it. God's done something contrary to nature. He's taken the wild and engrafted it into the natural or the native so as to improve it. The engrafting being the church being grafted into Israel. And how do we enter into it? This covenant was given to them. This is their covenant. What you and I are living in, we are living in courtesy of Jesus Christ, the benefits that he promised to the children of Israel. It's really pretty amazing when you stop and think about it. So he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. We're talking, of course, about the old covenant. Because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. What a marvelous promise. Verse 13 concludes in that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And I think I touched on... The promises that basically come out of this, if you have your uh, notes from last week, it's at the top of page 48. We basically have five major promises involved here in the new covenant. Number one, it's the promise of a covenant that is based on grace alone. Totally on the grace of God. And that's in verses six through nine. And secondly, it's the promise of the new birth. Uh, verse 10 captures the idea of Jeremiah 31, 31, and Romans 8, 4, what the law could not do, God did through his son. Uh, and then really all of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which talks about the glory of the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. The third is the promise of personal knowledge of the Lord. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ has a personal relationship with the Lord. God becomes our father. The Spirit becomes our comforter and our helper. The Lord Jesus Christ becomes our Savior. So we have a very personal knowledge of Him. And that's in verse 11. And then fourth, the promise of complete cleansing from sin. Verse 12, uh, Christ, of course, paid the penalty on the cross so that our sins and iniquities are remembered no more. And then fifth, the promise of liberation from the law of Moses. The law of Moses was like a dead weight hanging around the neck of the people. And again, all it could do is condemn, not because the law is wrong, but because we are, and because of our failure. And Paul develops this idea in Galatians 3, 23 to 29. Now we started last week looking at the new covenant on page 49. Is there anybody here that doesn't have a page 49? If you don't have one, I made a few extras. 
because I figured Thank you. someone would need anyone else. I'm down to anyone else? I've got one extra. How about that? That was a good guess. All right. The reason it's important for us to stop, and I, I think I mentioned this last week, but I'm going to mention it again because I think it's important. In our Wednesday night class, while I was teaching on the giving of the law, Exodus 20, what a marvelous opportunity. Uh, I got a uh, call from the pastor on Monday asking me if I could teach Exodus 20 on Wednesday night. I love opportunities like that because it forces you to really uh, get geared up and get into the Word and, and start praying and, and everything. But um, to understand the, the total contrast between the atmosphere, if you will, between the giving of the law and the giving of the new covenant. One's dark, one's light. One engenders fear, one produces joy. One emphasizes man's sinfulness, the other emphasizes Christ's righteousness. It's just like night and day. And so I was gonna draw, oh, I know what it was. When I started Wednesday night, I mentioned to them a study method that a friend of mine up in, uh, where is Duluth, Minnesota? Uh, he, uh, he has a three-step plan for study. You look at the context, you look at the content, and then you look at a comparison of other passages. And I think I mentioned a three-step plan to you last time where we took history and then we took categories and then we took exegesis and it basically comes out to Isagogics, which is a study of history, categories, basically, and I'm not writing this quite the way that it was taught to me, but basically it's ICE. Uh, we used to be told as I was being trained be an ice pastor. You don't have to be a nice pastor, but you should be an ice pastor. By that meaning, when you study, study the historical background, which is why books like this are so amazing. I mean, we have available to us today things that people in other generations just didn't have. We have an availability of resources that is just really astounding. And for me, you know, you buy a lot of books and they're like 30 bucks and they're like a fourth this size and they're not even worth reading. And then you get something like this. Uh, it is just useful all the time. I turn to it all the time. So we get the historical background. We look at the categories, which is what we're doing here when we look at the New Covenant. And then the exegesis is going into the original language, breaking down certain words, phrases, syntax, the relationship of words, we could go on and on. But at any rate, we're going to look at the New Covenant. And I think I got up to about point number five or six last time, but just for the sake of continuity, because I think it's important, I'm just going to read them quickly. So number one, the New Covenant was anticipated by the fading glory reflected on the face of Moses. And you'll remember uh, that from 2 Corinthians 3.7. And you can go back to Exodus 34, 29 to 35 to get the, uh, the background for that. Um, 
The old covenant, secondly, was temporary from the start. God never intended that it be in force forever. The new covenant, however, is eternal in nature. And I listed here, and I repeat these for the sake of people listening online, Hebrews 7, 16 and 17, Hebrews 7, 21, uh, verses 24 to 28, and then Hebrews 10, 10 through 14, which will be in very shortly. Third, the new covenant is specifically prophesied in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And as I just pointed out, though the new covenant was originally offered to Israel and Judah, it was entered into by the church. And how did that happen? That happened because of the rejection of Christ by the Jews and the reception of Christ predominantly by the Gentiles, the formation of the church, a spiritual body of Christ, and we are grafted in to the promises to Israel. The fourth point, whereas the old covenant was conditional and dependent on human obedience and therefore weak through the flesh, again, Romans 8, 3, the new covenant is unconditional. This is the re repetition of the phrase, I will. No conditions are placed on it. There's no if, then. It's just, I will. And the entrance into it is by faith. faith. So, uh, the Old Covenant was uh, conditional, New Covenant is unconditional, dependent on the faithfulness of God and the finished work of Christ. Hebrews 10, 12 to 14, and again, you notice in Exodus 19, the if-then statement uh, is a statement of uh, condition, and the I-will statements are statements of an unconditional covenant. Does that make sense to everybody? One covenant is the idea that if you do this, then I will do this. If you obey my law, then I will bless you. You could even say if you wanted to carry it this far, although no one could possibly do it, if you keep the whole law, you'll have eternal life. But it can't happen. And of course, we realize that we're behind the eight ball before we even try to keep it because we're born into the world, sinners and spiritually dead. So even... Uh, even the idea of someone being able to keep the law is uh, complete fantasy. It's just not possible. Fifth, the old covenant operated under a barrier between God and man, illustrated by the veil in the tabernacle. The new covenant opens the way into the very presence of God, and that's, of course, the picture of the rent veil. Matthew 27, 51, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, Hebrews 10, 19 to 21, and Hebrews 8, 8 to 14. As a matter of fact, I'm going to have the opportunity to go down to Phoenix again this uh, weekend, this Sunday, and teach in the old church where I was basically trained and raised up. And uh, it's going to be a, a neat opportunity because in the first uh, two sessions that I was able to have with them, I taught on the profile of a faithful shepherd. And I taught on the shepherd in his personal ministry, one-on-one -on -one with believers, the first class. The second class, I taught on the public ministry of the shepherd to the flock or the congregation. I didn't know I was going to have a third opportunity, but the third opportunity came along. So I'm going to be able to do the prof profile of a faithful local church. What God expects a local church to be, what it should look like. And uh, we'll have a little bit of fun with it because... I have a couple of passages that I'm going to show them that we would look at and say, oh, that, that's got to be uh, a great church. And yet both of them were complete failures. So there are elements that we need to get into our thinking about what a local church ought to be besides just the things that we generally tend to think about. Good ministry, motivated to the word, uh, gifted people, uh, rising to positions of leadership and service and ministry, you can have all of that and still be a failure as a church. And I'll be explaining all that to them, but I won't get started on it now or we'll never finish the new covenant. Okay, so I think we left off around point six. So the old covenant operated under an external law that had no power to transform the inner life. You know, this is one of the things that we really need to take seriously particularly when we're dealing with 
a local church situation. And here's why. The way of the world is what we call peer pressure. And the tragedy is too many of our churches actually operate on peer pressure. You come into the church and the pressure begins immediately. You have to act the right way. You have to say the right things. Uh, every church has its own culture. No two are alike. There are many similar, but no two are completely alike. And so the question is, when you come into this local church, do you immediately get the feeling that you have to conform? Like you start getting that uncomfortable feeling. Like I don't fit here because I don't do this. Or I don't fit here because I don't say things the way they say them. Or I don't fit here because of some other characteristic or quality of my life, my dress. Some places it's the clothes you wear. Uh, there are churches that you don't walk into if you're not wearing a suit. I've even had Christians tell me that if you're not wearing a suit, you should be thrown out of church. Oh. Um, you know, that's the culture they want. But the problem is, peer pressure works from the outside in. And this is the way of the world. We don't want to establish a culture of peer pressure, even though the things we're pressuring for may be good in themselves. This is not the way to transform people's lives. This is not the way that God has chosen to change us. God's plan is that he starts from the center. And since we're gonna be talking about the tabernacle before long, think of yourself in three parts. There's a target. Body, soul, and something that didn't exist until you trusted in Jesus Christ. Spirit. When we're born into this world, we are born physically alive, but we are spiritually dead, which means this part doesn't exist in us. It is totally dead. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we make a volitional decision. We hear the gospel. Someone presents the gospel, presents Christ to us. We take that information in and we breathe out faith. When a baby is born, what do they do? I'm sure many of you have seen babies born and you know that every single one of them when they're born, they come out of the womb and they go, Right? No. They go, <gasps> and they come to that point of consciousness and awareness in this world. It's a inhale, exhale. It's the same way when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We inhale the gospel. We receive the gospel. We breathe out faith. When we do that, God creates something new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man is in Christ, he is a what? A new creature, a new creation. Something is created within us that was never there before. And that is a living spirit. In that spirit dwells, I don't know if I can get this in here where you can read it, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God indwells the newly created human spirit. Now here's the wonderful thing about it. That part of you, that new creation, is incapable of sin. This is what gets people very confused when they're reading through 1 John. Because 1 John talks about he who is born of God does not sin because he cannot sin. And every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, are saying... Maybe I'm not born again, because I still sin. Yeah, but you're misunderstanding the passage. What the passage is saying is that that new creature is separate from sin. And if you stop and think about it, it's very similar 
to the tabernacle and later the temple because you have the outer court, then you have the holy place, and then you have the holy of holies. And just like the temple or the tabernacle, the outer part is accessible to everyone. The body, we go through our lives, people see us, we see them, we rub shoulders with people, people recognize us by uh, our looks and appearance, and they say, I know you. Well, you know who someone is, but that doesn't mean that you really know them. All you're seeing is the outer court. Then you get to the soul. And of course, in the holy, of, uh, in the, uh, holy place, only priests could enter in. In the same way, we only allow certain people to enter into our soul. We keep other people on the outside. We say, hi, how are you? Usually we're not really even interested in hearing how they are. How you doing? You having a good day? And it's very casual and it's very superficial. But we have those that we call friends, which is interesting because John had a title for believers. You know what John calls believers? Friends. Jesus said, you're my friends if you do what I command you, right? We allow certain people into our soul, into our heart, into our inner life, but we're restrictive about that. We're a little bit more picky. Not just everyone gets to know us deep on the inside. In the Holy of Holies, there was only one allowed, and that was the high priest. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, but for you and I, every day is a Day of Atonement, and who indwells the Holy of Holies of our life? God, the Holy Spirit. And so we become that new creature. So God works not by the peer pressure coming from the outside. He works right here. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, in other words, based on all of the marvelous provisions of his grace and mercy, I beseech you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's the only thing that makes sense. And how do we do that? We do that, as he goes on to say, by the renewing of the mind. So God's changes take place from the soul, working outward, and this may be a new thought to you, but when you're trying to break a bad habit and you're trying to stop it on the outside, you're, it's never going to work. It's not going to work because you're starting at the wrong end. We have to start here. And we start here in our attitude, in an attitude of humility, an attitude of surrender, an attitude of submission and prayer. Father, this is something in my life doesn't even have to be a big thing. It's just something that you know shouldn't be a part of your life. And you start praying and you start reading the word and you start claiming promises and you let God work on the inner man, the inner man of the heart. And as he does his work here, it'll start working its way out. And this is what we call spiritual growth. It's what spiritual growth is all about. And tragically and unfortunately, Many of our churches don't understand this. Many of our churches are peer pressure factories and you conform to get along or you have to leave because you just don't fit. So the old covenant operated from the external pressure. It had no power to transform the inner life. The new covenant works under the power of an inner law. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. And that comes as we study God's word under the leadership and the light of God, the Holy Spirit. The renewed heart, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit brings about that transformation in our life. Jeremiah 31, 33, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, and Hebrews 8, 8 through 12. Point seven, in the upper room, Jesus indicated that his crucifixion would inaugurate the new covenant. 
This is my body, which is given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. You remember all the passages, Matthew 26, 26 to 28, Mark uh, 14, 22 to 24, Luke 22, 19 and 20, and of course, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. Those who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior automatically enter into the new covenant. It is the new covenant in His blood, and as soon as we receive Him as our Savior, that covenant is applied to us. The specific provisions, this is point eight of the new covenant, are as follows. And you can see these by looking at Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27, Hebrews chapter 8, which we just finished up, and then Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Here they are, five amazing things. Number one, a personal knowledge of and a relationship with God. We are called children of God. We are called brethren, brothers and sisters in the family of God. Secondly, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every believer. Uh, there are a lot of people that teach that at some point subsequent to your salvation, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And a lot of people refer to this as the second blessing. Unfortunately, it's not biblical. The truth is that the moment we trust Christ as Savior, the moment that God creates that new creature within us, the Spirit of God takes up permanent residence in our soul. We never have to worry about praying the prayer of David, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, because it's not possible. In the Old Testament, it was. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit rested on people. The Holy Spirit came upon them to accomplish certain tasks, but the Holy Spirit could depart. Not anymore, not under the new covenant. The Spirit of God is a permanent possession. Your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He's talking to the whole group, and he says, do you not know that you as the church are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And then in 1 Corinthians 6.19, he's talking to each individual, and he says to the individual, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. A third provision, once for all, cleansing from the debt of sins. Once for all. We're going to see the uh, words once for all or the phrase once for all. The author is going to begin using it a lot. Let me just see if I can pick out a couple of the places. Uh, if you drop down to chapter 9, um, you get to verse 26. Once at the end of the ages. That is once for all, never to be repeated. Verse 28, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. I think it comes up about four times toward the end of the chapter, uh, but I'm not going to look, uh, look all of them up at this point. It simply refers to the fact that it's something that can never be repeated. We are cleansed from all of our sins, past, present, and future, insofar as salvation is concerned. Remember that there's a difference... between our position, which is in Christ, and our practice, which is either in fellowship or the opposite, which is carnality. When we talk about salvation, we're talking about position in Christ, and that is the forgiveness of all sin. You have a standing before God of being sinless. Not only did he do the work of subtraction, which takes your sins away, he did the work of addition, which applies the righteousness of Christ to you. That is your standing before God. That's the standing that you had the moment you trusted Christ. Even at your worst failure, you still have that standing. It's never going to change. 
A good illustration of that is the most famous parable ever taught. You know what it is? The parable of the prodigal son. As far as his practice, he was alienated from the father. As far as the father's attitude to him, nothing had changed. So, in practice, however, sometimes we are in fellowship. A better term is actually having fellowship. It's an active concept. We're either having fellowship with God or we're not. Depending on whether we are submissive in faith, obedience, and things like that, or otherwise we're in carnality, which is the problem of the Corinthian church. All right? So, once for all cleansing from the dead of all sins. Do our sins matter down here in practice? Absolutely. Because sin breaks fellowship with God. God's come up with a very simple solution. It's a very easy solution. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he will always do the same thing. Why? Because it's already been paid. All sin has already been taken care of. Why it matters here is because it affects our fellowship and our usefulness in the plan of God. Okay? The fourth point or point D on your paper, every believer in Jesus Christ becomes a king priest. I list here 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9, Revelation 1, 6, Revelation 5, 10. By the way, there's a way that we know that the rapture took place at the beginning of Revelation chapter 4. How can we know that when John hears the command, come up here, it's a picture of the rapture of the church? You know, people get confused, and there are a lot of guys out there today that are teaching that we are in the tribulation, uh, we're in whatever such and such phase of the tribulation. No, the tribulation hasn't even begun yet. How do we know that? Because the church is still here. When John hears that command in Revelation 4.1, come up here, and he is taken up into the presence of God in heaven, and then we read chapter 4 and chapter 5, and what do we see the multitude singing about? Well, if you check out the references that are in your notes, you'll find out that they are praising God because he has made us a kingdom of priests. You have made us kings and priests. Who can that be said of? Never happened to anybody in the Old Testament. Never will happen to anybody in the tribulation. Who else could it be? It can only be the church. So we know that the church is raptured before the tribulation begins. And if that's not enough to convince us, we should be convinced by the fact that in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, which is the whole... Uh, section about the tribulation the church is not mentioned one time only Israel why is that simple explanation we're not here we're gone so if you look around the world today and you're starting to get a little bit antsy and worried about the tribulations going to begin you can it's listen it'll be bad enough before the tribulation we are in the birth pangs and the birth pangs are bad enough because they're going to get more and more intense and they're going to come closer and closer together and I don't know how far away the rapture of the church is but I can tell you this the longer it takes the rougher it's going to get so we need to steal ourselves and steal our souls in God's word to be ready for whatever may come finally the last point, every believer has a threefold ministry. And you know what? This is so important. I'm just going to jump ahead of us and go to Hebrews chapter 10. And I think I'm going to end with this. I'm getting close to my time being up anyway. Hebrews chapter 10. Every believer has a threefold ministry. You can see that he's building on his conclusions when we read in Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, new and living compared to the old covenant, which he consecrated for us 
through the veil that is his flesh. Once that veil ripped from top to bottom, the way into God's presence was open, uh, presence was open, providing we come through faith in Christ. He says in verse 21, having a high priest over the house of God, and here they are, three things that apply to each and every one of us. Number one, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is he talking about here in verse 22? Drawing near is terminology used of a priest approaching the altar. This is our first ministry. Priesthood. What do we do with our priesthood? It's our prayer life. It's our intercession on behalf of other people. We pray for others in need. We pray for people to come to Christ. We go before the throne of grace. We make our requests known. Twice in the book of Revelation, the prayers of the saints are compared to the incense of the altar ascending into the presence of God. Priesthood. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Ambassadorship. We are ambassadors for Christ. Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians 5 in uh, verse 17 through 19. So we have an ambassadorship. What is that? That is our witness to the unsaved world. Every believer is a priest. Our priesthood is to God. Every believer is an ambassador. Our ambassadorship is to the lost. And then he says in verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We are each and every one a minister to those around us. So, priesthood, pointing up to God, ambassadorship, looking out on the unbelieving world, ministry, fellow believers. You want a job? There are three. Pray, witness, serve. Pray, witness, edify. That's a pretty good place to stop, and I think time's up, so I'm going to end it right there. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your grace and mercy to us and all that we have in Christ, and we can spend hours and days and weeks and months. We can spend the rest of our lives trying to discover all of the marvelous gifts that are ours because of what Christ has done for us. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a never-ending source of delight and comfort and encouragement and light in a very dark time in human history. Help us keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not react to the world around us, but rather let us respond to your spirit and your word that our lives may be pleasing in your sight and effective for your plan. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen.